Welcome to page. Today we have seen a Welcome to the source for the agriculture and MSME sectors in the upcoming budget. Vivian Fernandez needs no introduction as and is a institution in his own right on budget budget. So we'll come straight to the points, sir. Uh, to your favorite subject, agriculture and MSMEs. So first, let's take the subject of agriculture. So from green revolution to the gene revolution now, that's the topic nowadays where people are discussing this. So how do you think from where you are sitting and the way you have been following agriculture specifically in the last couple of years, Please would like to know more. Ajay, thanks for having me on this show. In a few days from now, the budget will be announced. And the budget is generally about outlays for various sectors, but it is also it has also had a signaling aspect. And what has happened in the past few years is that the signal that the government is has been sending is at variance with what India Indian agriculture requires. For example, there has been a great emphasis on zero-budget natural farming, on traditional or paramparagat krishi, or even organic farming. These are all niche areas. They have their place, but they cannot feed. They cannot meet the needs of a growing population. And our population is going to increase from the current level of 1.3 billion to about 1.5 billion over the next few years. So... We cannot get away from science-based agriculture. And unfortunately, the government's emphasis has been on aspects that do not give science its rightful role in agriculture. Okay. Okay. Are you getting me, sir? Uh, for the viewers, if there is there is a bit of a technical problem, uh, and, and if we drop out, then we just hang on there discussion will continue uh, so sir uh, how do you see what is the way forward for and especially you know that concept of smart agriculture sustainable agriculture agriculture which is you know very part of the climate you know sustainability that is right ajay see cl climate change is a um... Um, a real issue and there's no escaping it. We have seen uh, the impact of it over the past few years in terms of very extreme um, weather conditions, floods uh, in some parts, extreme drought in other, other places and all that. And agriculture has to adjust to this new reality of uh, climate change. So we require climate smart agriculture. So far, we have had the green revolution and the green revolution was input intensive agriculture. So you had high output, but you also gave in more uh, inputs. We had high-yielding varieties that, that were input-responsive, um, that responded well to additional doses of irrigation as well as to fertilizers, and they gave, gave us increased output. But that is no longer possible. For example, um, because of the pressure of population, the amount of arable land, cultivable land, is going to shrink. There's going to be more urbanization. More people are going to live in cities. We are also going to have more industrialization as people come out of agriculture into other sector services and uh, industry. So the amount of land that is available for agriculture will shrink. But at the same time, you got to produce more. 
you got to i mean the agriculture will have to be intensive but at the same time we cannot have input intensive agriculture we should use less of resources less water because climate change might result in you know water scarcity it could also result in um, prolonged spells of um, of dryness so we require plants that can uh, be resilient that can cope with weather stresses as well as the stresses caused by pests and diseases that is why we this is what is known as climate smart agriculture so we require different practices as well as we need to reengineer crops to withstand such stresses which are known as biotic and abiotic stresses so as you mentioned we need to go from the green revolution to the gene revolution so that we can produce more with less inputs less water less fertilizer but more output so can you explain uh, you know in your in your way own words explain more of gene revolution in agriculture so that you know uh, a lot of people uh, who are watching this they can understand it in their in in, in a simple way exactly so the gene revolution is basically about how to reengineer plants we have genetic modification is one technology and currently we also have gene editing in the case of gene genetic modification you bring in genes from outside the species for example okay. in the case of uh, uh, bt cotton which is resistant to the um, bollworm you have put in a gene from a bacterium for, for, which is which is toxic to the bollworm so instead of spraying more pesticides you have the plants themselves are toxic to that bollworm and that is why you not required to sp uh, spray more pesticides the the worms as they develop they uh, die by eating the plant uh, tissue so we have bt um, bt cotton in this country and that has resulted in india becoming the second largest producer the second largest exporter of cotton and the largest producer the largest producer of cotton and the second largest exporter of cotton of course in the in the i think this year that has not been the case but it has created a dramatic change in our cotton economy but sadly what has happened is that we have had two variants of uh, bt cotton that were approved but new variants have not been approved as a result of which uh, farmers are suffering from a resurgence of certain bollworms called the pink bollworm and there has been a loss of uh, output so this is there is a constant fight um, uh, in the natural world the there's a pressure on uh, the, the bugs to uh, you know um, if there is a if there is a uh, some technology that does not allow them to survive or thrive then they'll find mechanisms to overcome it it's, it's like in the case of coronavirus all the time you see that the virus is mutating similarly in the case of the natural world you have these bugs constantly mutating and that is why you also require science to change to cope and to stay one step ahead similarly we require a lot of oil seeds now mustard has got a huge um, uh, oil content and we require to grow more of mustard but we also require to increase its productivity the currently the productivity is about 1 ton per hectare we need to increase the productivity so that we do not we, because we do not have so much of land to devote to uh, to these oilseed crops but a mustard uh, genetically modified mustard hybrid which was developed by dr deepak pantel the former vice chancellor of delhi university along okay. with a team of other delhi university uh, scientists 
it was recommended for approval for cultivation by the apex regulator of gm um, technology in 2017 but till today the government has not approved it for commercial cultivation by farmers and the country is the loser and this is not a new technology canada is using it australia is using it and so we import canola for example from these countries which is nothing else but genetic genetically modified rape seed but we do not allow our own farmers to grow genetically modified mustard so there so, are these yeah, so there are these technologies that can help us to meet the um, uh, to face up to climate change as well as to improve our yields and output so sir if you uh, just correct me if i'm wrong is it you are talking that all these things that you just talk are natural and they are different from gmos or is it the okay. same thing see there is a big fear that um, genetic mod genetically modified crops are unnatural that's not the case i mean you just introduce some other uh, in the course of nature this kind of genetically mo genetic modifications happen naturally over uh, centuries or you know or more than that here we are trying just trying to speed up the process and there's a rigorous process of approval for safety and all that so that only when the when the past those tests are these crops allowed to be cultivated and we have had genetically modified crops grown for the past about 25 years and there has been no case of any kind of adverse impact so i do not understand why our government has not embraced this technology and as a result of which a whole lot of companies that were doing agri biotechnology research in this country they have now become just dormant in that field and some are even relocating to other countries relocating the research departments to other countries what is the level of education that several companies who are dealing in this sort of uh, what do you call agriculture promoting this sort of agriculture what are the constraints they are facing and what are they doing to educate people farmers and even the government as such sir because government initially had been quite receptive of it that it was passed by the council also and then there are, uh, it's been a bit uh, you know quiet on that front see i do not want to overemphasize the importance of genetic modification technology it's not as if it's the only technology that can help us right. uh, cope with climate change but it is an important technology we have had the green revolution as i said which was uh, input intensive and also gave us high output what we are now saying is that if we adopt the green revolution we'll be able to get high output with lesser inputs and we can have climate resilient crops now you mentioned about uh, gm crops the hmm. first one bt cotton was was approved in 2002 when right. um, the current prime minister our prime minister was the chief minister of gujarat so he knows about this technology and how gujarat has benefited but there is i think you know kind of lot of hesitancy in approving it but that's a different issue let's not go too much into right. genetic right. modification right. there are other technologies which are you know um where people need not have so much of opposition for example gene editing where instead of introducing a foreign gene you are just trying to edit out the the um, uh, genome of a, of an of a plant so that you remove the bad things out and retain only the good portions so that is also possible technology has evolved so much and when we are allowing mutations through chemical processes to radiation that is a little um blunt 
Whereas gene editing is much more precise. And I think our government should at least allow gene editing to be done in this country. But sadly, the draft regulations have not even been finalized despite so many years. So as, as a senior journalist uh, uh, who has been interacting with a lot of stakeholders, farmers, you know, companies who are part of this process, uh, what do you think uh, they would be expecting uh, from this budget? How do you look at this? Ajay, I think we require um, a lot of a big policy, um, some big policy changes in agriculture. All along, we have been trying to support farmers through prices. We have been trying to manipulate the prices. We have been giving, giving them price support. Uh, through uh, minimum support uh, support prices and all that. That is not right. sustainable. That has resulted in uh, um, minimum support prices and a short procurement has resulted in the country producing more of the things we do not require. For, for example, we produce more of wheat than we can consume. We produce a lot of uh, rice and at huge environmental cost because rice requires a lot of water and rice is grown the kind of rice that is procured is grown in areas like Punjab, which are not suitable for, for rice because they, they've got warm climate and they over-extract groundwater. So these policies need to change. We also produce a lot of sugar, sugar than we can even export. So we require a reorientation, I would say, in our policies. And this budget should you know, um, send out that signal and nudge farmers into desirable areas. For example, we require to grow a lot of pulses because ours is a country we, where we depend, where we get much of our protein from pulses. Though a lot of people eat meat, they do not eat meat in sufficient quantities and much of their protein comes from pulses. So we need to grow more of pulses. And we can do that if the government does assured procurement of pulses and gives farmers that minimum support price then what will happen is that you'll see a lot of irrigated land coming into pulses and our production increasing. Similarly with oil seeds, you know, we import 60% of our uh, edible oil um, requirement and much of it is palm oil, which comes from Malaysia and Indonesia. So we can produce our own, our own oil seeds and both oil seeds as well as pulses. These are what are known as social useful crops. This is a term which... Uh, the former chief economic advisor, Arvind Subramanyam, uh, mm -hmm. gave in one of his economic surveys. He said we should be growing more of the socially useful crops. Why are they socially useful? They're socially useful because they use less water. And these legumes also absorb nitrogen from the atmosphere and store it in the soil in the form of nodules. So they, they fix atmospheric nitrogen and they require less of urea, which we import at a huge cost and supply at very low rates to the farmers. For example, the price that farmers pay for urea per ton is about $75, when it costs about $1,000 to $1,000 per ton to import. So there is a huge subsidy bill. Now, if you grow more of these socially useful crops, pulses and oil seeds, and less of wheat and rice and sugarcane, then our Fertilizer bill will also come down and will produce the kind of things which the country requires. So I would say that there's a lot of, there's a, there's a great um, role for policy to play in nudging farmers into producing crops that the country uh, requires. Similarly, uh, many states either give free electric, electricity to farmers or they give it at a low rate. As a result, there's an overdraw of groundwater. 
Now, I would imagine that when the government does uh, procurement, there should be an emphasis also on the climate aspects. And we should procure paddy, for example, or rice, where the irrigated water use is, is, is quite low. And if that were um, a, a benchmark or a yardstick, then you will see that we'll be procuring less rice from Punjab and more of it from the eastern states, which are naturally suited for the cultivation of rice because they get a lot of, um, of, of, of rain. So this is how price policy can help us in uh, nudging farmers into do, doing more sustainable agriculture. The other aspect I would also say is that we have we suffer a lot from paddy stubble burning, mm -hmm. particularly in North India. Right. And I think that the government should, you know, nudge farmers into more conservation agriculture practices. What we require is what is known as sustainable intensification. This is what the International right. Wheat and um, Maize Improvement Center in Mexico or the International Rice Research Institute the great research institutes of the world are recommending that we go into uh, conservation agriculture and for sustainable intensification. What do I mean by sustainable intensification? It means, you know, you have a cropping system. For example, in Punjab, you grow rice, then you grow wheat, and then you grow a, a crop of moong bean, moong. Because as I said, moong, mm. you know, takes mm. nitrogen from the atmosphere and stores it in the soil. So it improves the um, improves the soil. We also follow uh, we also follow no-till agriculture because ploughing exposes the soil to the atmosphere and results in a loss of moisture. It also destroys the capillaries that have been formed by the previous by the roots of the previous crop. So the world over farmers are going progressive farmers are going in for conservation agriculture where they do not till the land, till the fields. When you do not plough the fields, you avert a lot of tractor emissions. And as you know, tractor emissions have an impact on the atmosphere, right. on the on 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 our, our release earth warming gases, and the residue of the previous crop is left on the field to degrade over time. And that improves the soil quality, its moisture retaining capacity, it improves the organic carbon content, and it also results in the growth of beneficial microorganisms, and through that straw cover, the straw that is left in the field, you sow the other crop. For example, if you leave um, a paddy straw on the field and then you sow wheat through that straw cover, you do not have to do any burning of the paddy stubble. So you, you tackle two issues in, in one go. One is, you know, you do not have um, pollution, atmospheric pollution. And secondly, you, you, you improve soil health. And you also, you know, avert tractor emissions. So, you know, it is this form of agriculture is greatly beneficial and I hope the government promotes such kind of rational um, agriculture. I'm sure uh, there are great, uh, very good brains within the government uh, system and uh, I'm sure there must be also uh, thinking over taking care of the issues that uh, you have raised right now and hope that some of these issues are taken care of in the coming back. One last thing. Ajay, Ajay, I also want to make a point that when I say all this, I don't mean that sure. our farmers do not require support. They do require support because we have a large number of, most of our farmers are small and marginal and I don't right. think they can uh, you know, survive on their own without any kind of subsidies. 
but the subsidies have to be given in a different way. And agricultural economists like Dr. Ashok Gulati have said that instead of doing, giving price support, we must give income support because price support, MSP and others, uh, uh, cause market distortions. You know, so instead of intervening in the market, you give direct income support. You know, a, a, uh, for example, a subsidy per acre of land. So that the farmers can then grow whatever they want. And then, you, of course, you free up the input um, prices. You free up the price of electricity. And when you free up the price of electricity, when uh, electricity prices are market um, determined, then obviously there will be less usage of electricity. Similarly, with the inputs, you free up the prices of fertilizer so that uh, less of fertilizer, uh, fertilizers are used and they're used in the correct, correct proportions. Currently, there's an overuse of urea and less of potash or... Um, uh, or pota uh, potassium and other um, fertilizers. So you require to collect that imbalance in fertilizers uh, for that for which we require income support rather than price support. Got it. Got it. Sir, can earlier the thing was that with intensive agriculture, a lot of population which is dependent on agriculture, they will move on to other areas. But we see that in spite of that, the dependency on agriculture, the levels are, are for all of us to see. And in present, you see a lot of people are going back to the rural areas. And is there even the big companies are there? All the future steps depending on the demand from the how do you see that? I Means you have been watching this sector for a long, long time. That is right, Ajay. What has happened is that all along, after the reforms were um, instituted, we have seen our GDP growing and agriculture, agricultural economy shrink and more people leaving agriculture and getting into manufacturing and services. And that is the way to go because the productivity is higher in those sectors, the incomes are better. And that is how um, people you know, um, um, climb up the income ladder. Um, if you look at the past last decade, um, um, I mean, the first decade of this century, our economy was growing at nine percent for about uh, in about three, um, in three consecutive years, and you saw a lot of people from rural yeah. areas, from the farm sector, getting into construction. There was a lot of building activity. We also saw a lot of export activity, people getting into uh, low-skill uh, jobs like in the textile industry or in the leather industry, and that is the way it should happen. But what has happened because of COVID, I think a lot of jobs have been lost. Many of the micro, small and medium enterprises, they have shut. And people who are employed in them have gone back to the rural areas as a result of which we are seeing not a shrinking of agricultural employment, but an increase in agricultural employment. And this, I don't think these are all productive jobs. This is actually disguised um, unemployment. Right. So, uh, any further point on this, sir? So what I would like to say is that the government must do a lot for the micro, small and medium enterprises. Because uh, this is a sector that is labor intensive. Before the pandemic, it employed about 110 million people. It accounted for a third of our GDP and for uh, more than 40% of our exports. And there are about 64 million micro, small and medium enterprises and 99% of them are micro, which is uh, enterprises with investment of uh, up to 1 crore rupees and annual turnover of, turnover of about 5 crore rupees. 
So this this sector has taken a big, big hit during the past two years, and I think the government must do much more to help this sector. The big industries are of course thriving; their profits are increasing, and they also have pricing power. But the small, micro, small, and medium enterprises do not have that uh, endurance capability. What the government has done is it has allowed the banks to do much of the heavy lifting. For example, it has got the uh, a guaranteed credit line scheme through which loans were given to the um, to micro, small, and medium enterprises. That has helped to some extent, but banks will not lend to borrowers of doubtful repaying capability. Why should the banks lend if they are not sure that that small enterprise is going to survive? And banks themselves are having a problem with their balance sheets. So I think instead of allowing this, instead of allowing the banks to do the heavy lifting, I think the government must, through its fiscal policy, do something. Must do something directly, helping to help the micro, small, and medium enterprises. I don't know how you can do that, but I mean, I think I'm just flagging off an issue. So. Especially after COVID, government has made seven. Uh, those have been. I, I'm sure that they must be quite effective in their own ways. Your opinion, apart from the point you raised, what are their expectations when you have been talking to them from this budget and 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 obviously from your understanding of this sector, which employs such a huge number of the Indian population? No, Ajay, I'm not saying that what the government has done has not helped. For example. Uh, according to a study by SBI Homes that was, I think, released uh, in December or early, uh, earlier this month, the emergency credit line guarantee scheme, according to SBI Homes, has mm -hmm. helped about 13, 13.5 uh, micro, small and medium enterprises. And it has saved about 15 million jobs. But as I mentioned, there are about 64 million, uh, there, there were about 64 million uh, MSME units before the pandemic. And if it has helped 13 and a half, that's about 20% uh, of the of the units. So there are still a large number of units which are perhaps outside the ambit of government support. And we cannot let this sector just uh, collapse because it has got long-term implications um, for the economy. A lot of jobs will be lost. And when people lapse into poverty, it's very difficult to bring them out. It's got the human uh, cost is, um, is just tremendous in terms of... Uh, um, you know, poor people will not be able, will be undernourished. They'll be unhealthy. The children will not be properly schooled. So it has got right. a long-term implication, and that is why I think the government must do something in this budget to help out the sector. Well made, sir. And uh, we'll have to. Uh, government will do uh, what it is. Uh, planning to do uh, on these sectors something some of these the points that you have raised maybe they are included in that more obviously will come uh, come when the budget is presented so, points thank you ajay has been done and what has been left out and then we can discuss it further but thank you very much for your insights sir your understanding of the sector both the sectors and uh, helping us understand the issue uh, in the best manner possible. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ajay, for having me over. It was good talking to you. Thank you, sir.